Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you you can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing hi and welcome to today's episode of climbing consulting in today's conversation i speak with jonathan davis managing director at avalok Jonathan was introduced to me by Simon Williams, former guest on the show, having asked him who he would recommend. He pointed me Jonathan's way, and I can tell you it was a fantastic recommendation, and I'm really pleased to be able to share this conversation with you. Jonathan started his career at Anderson's in the late 1980s, where he managed to get his foot in the door despite not having the educational success of many of his peers That didn't stop him, though, and he worked his way up from the unloved outsourcing department to becoming an equity partner at the time of the famed Accenture IPO. Since then, he has taken on a raft of varied and challenging roles, from attempting to buy the well-known UK car manufacturer Caterham to helping to turn around the FS consultancy Capco through to leading FIS's two and a half thousand person, 400 million pound 
Middle East and Africa business. As you'd expect, he's learned a huge amount along the way about what makes good consulting teams tick and how to build colleague and client relationships that really work. As well as the ups and downs of his career, in this one, Jonathan and I delve deeper into the human side of consulting and talk about how Jonathan overcame his own insecurities at the start of his career. We also touch on why and how people perform well in their roles and what it takes to be a top consultant and the value of diversity at all levels in your organization. Few people in our industry can match Jonathan's breadth of experience and he brings so many valuable insights into today's conversation. Whatever stage you're at in your career, whether you're attempting to break into consulting, refine your leadership skills, or maybe you're looking to broaden out your portfolio and try something different, I know that you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So with the intro done, dusted, all that's left to say is please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Davis. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nick. Lovely to see you. So I'm really looking forward to this. I know we've had a bit of a chat and obviously we were introduced by Simon Williams, speaks highly of you from your time as a non-exec at DMW and really keen to to touch on a lot of the journey that I guess led to that and beyond. And maybe we start, I guess, for my listeners who don't know you so well, it'd be great to get a bit of an overview on your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'd very happy to do that. And thank you to Simon for the introduction. Simon has been a, a formative part of, of my career, I, I suppose. We met at Anderson Consulting many, many years ago, and then his story at DMW was incredibly impressive. And so it was really interesting to see somebody like Simon, who was a fantastic consultant with a small C for whom it's a career grade, make progress. And I learned a lot from Simon. So thank you. Yeah. So my story is that I, if you start at where I am now, I'm managing director for mergers, acquisitions and restructuring at Avalog, which involves working with the chief exec of the business to help to understand where we should take the business over the next three to five years, what the structure should look like, where we want to focus and so on. And that's now, and that is a recent change. For the four years prior to that, I was a managing director for the UK and Ireland business for Avalok, which was a PL management position where I was responsible for sales and delivery to all of Avalok's clients and, and new in the UK and Ireland. But where did it all start? Um, a long, long time ago. I did, actually, I realized the other day when I when I got a uh, a third COVID vaccination, that aged me quite significantly. Fortunately, the chap that, that let me into the car park said, you don't look old enough to have this, but unfortunately I am. So anyway, 35 years. Actually, it's interesting. It's 35 years odd career. And, and Simon, I, I met very early on in it, along with a chap called Christopher Dean, who I'm still in touch with, who was very involved with Simon at DMW. And actually, that was part of my very early history. So where did I start? I started as a computer operator for Arthur Anderson in the form it was when Arthur Anderson was still an entity before it before it disappeared. And then I had a, a very structured career, which proved to be extremely valuable to me in, in later career and life. But I went through a long process, uh, an 11-year career of going up through being computer operator. Then I tested systems, and then I was involved in building systems and infrastructure. And then I moved on into managing those builds, 
managing bigger pieces of projects and systems integration and so on. So I went up through a very structured path of being an assistant consultant, a consultant, a manager, a senior manager, an associate partner, and then a partner at, uh, at Anderson Consulting as it was with the theme of technology and outsourcing as a strong theme through all of the things that, that I did. After I left there, so I was at Anderson, or Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting and Accenture for 23 years in all. The firm obviously went public in the year 2000. I stayed for, you know, for 10, 11 years after that and worked with it as it became a corporation, which in and of itself was quite an interesting process to observe, actually. A, a, a consulting firm becoming a corporation was uh, or a partnership becoming a corporation, perhaps I should put, put more accurately, was a very interesting process to watch. So I left after that and I went at that time I had a thirst to do something entrepreneurial. So I actually went and worked, I was a contractor actually working for the Royal Mail's innovation group, which was called IRED. And we put together a proposition, which in those days was quite innovative. Nowadays it wouldn't be seen as, but it was to try and create an electronic post box for everybody in the country based on postcode to lodge all important documentation and then to look at how you could turn the Royal Mail into what it really is, which is a brilliant logistics network to deliver everything to the for the last mile to the front door. So I did that for a while and that that obviously didn't go um, anywhere particularly for all sorts of reasons, but it was an interesting process. I then went to be the head of capital markets at Capco which was a brilliant business. It was a functionally very strong content-driven consulting firm, much smaller than, than the firm I'd come from. And it was an interesting back to your roots, really. So I was there for three years and, and four years, actually, I think, and um, saw really interesting. It's interesting to see Capco go through almost exactly the same growth path that Anderson Consulting had gone through, but just in a much shorter period of time because of size and scale. After that, I moved to work for FIS, which at the time owned Capco, and I went to completely the opposite end of the spectrum. So I did three jobs for FIS. I started off because I decided that I actually, at that point, I wasn't completely sure what I wanted to do. So I went to work for FIS for a chap called Mark Davey, who was a brilliant individual. Unfortunately, Mark, Mark died some time ago, but he was a fantastic guy. And he asked me to help him close a contract with Sainsbury's Bank for core banking systems. So I went to be the sales, a sales contractor, essentially, to close that. And then that went well. And so Mark asked me to be the sales director. For a short period of time, I was the sales director for FIS in EMEA. And then he asked me to be the managing director. So I was the MD for FIS in EMEA or the chief exec, I guess, more properly given the nature of the role. And that was the other end of the spectrum. So I had two and a half thousand people working for me and about 400 million pounds of revenue. And I was sat on the board of the European entity for FIS. And so that was absolutely different. And, and I learned a huge amount, particularly because FIS was more of a product company than it was a consulting business. So I did that. I then had a foray into even more entrepreneurial territory when I decided that I really wanted to do uh, have an entrepreneurial part to my career. So I tried to buy a car company, a small, low volume car manufacturer, which might seem like a very odd thing to do, but there, there were reasons for it. And, and I spent a year 
putting a bid together, which was interesting and unfortunately wasn't ultimately successful. Although we got some backing, it wasn't successful. And so I then decided what to want to do next. And I thought that actually I really liked the smaller end of, of business and Avalok came along as an opportunity. And that's when, you know, coming full circle to where I started, I joined Avalok as the managing director for the UK and Ireland business. Fantastic, Jonathan. Well, I think a great walk through your journey so far and, and a lot of things for us to dig into there. And I almost, just because it, it intrigued me in what you've just said, and I think is probably the part that, in terms of the story, will take us slightly out of consulting. So I'm going to start with it just because I'm sure I'm not the only person who's, who's curious. You mentioned around this small car manufacturer and, and putting a bid together on that. I'd love to know a bit more about that, the, you know, the story and, you know, you talked about how you learned a lot there and, you know, it was, it, it was overall, even though it didn't quite come off, it was, it was an enjoyable, interesting, you know, really good sort of experience. Can you just share a bit more of that story, how it came about, the journey, and, and I guess also any, any lessons or learnings that, that could help our audience? So, Caterham was fascinating. I, I wanted to try and see if we could to buy the company for a couple of reasons. One was I had a real urge to do something entrepreneurial and to run a business and really feel as though I was taking a business from a stable position to a growth position to be able to leverage a product that was really good but that was not maximizing its potential in the market and to take a team of people that was really interesting actually in the team of people there was fascinating i'll come back to that in a second but i i decided to try because the company had characteristics where i thought we could do something with it i knew a fair bit about it and i was a customer of the business and I wanted to do something like that to build and run something. So that that's kind of how it came about. I was very fortunate and, you know, you need some luck and fortune in life because of the things that I'd done earlier in my career. I'd been a shareholder at Capco and I'd been a shareholder at, at Accenture and that had given me a certain amount of freedom in terms of time to be able to explore some things. So I had some time that I could spend doing this and I decided to do it. When we got into the thing, a number of things became apparent. One was it was well worth doing because the group of people at Caterham was fascinating. They employ a whole range of people, including probably little known people who've had quite some difficulty in life. For example, people who've been in prison in in a local area uh, were taken on by the company and given the opportunity to get back into employment and so on. So it's quite an interesting business in, in, in many ways. What did I learn and how did it go? Well, I learned, I think, that skills that you put together in a consulting career are applicable to many, many, many things. And I'd got to the stage of life where I had some confidence about being able to do things, possibly a little too much, arguably, but but I had some confidence that I could do it. And I approached it exactly as you would any consulting project. I'd never raised money in the markets before. I'd not had to build a team from scratch before that had the credibility to be given an opportunity like that. And I had not put a bid together on my own to be able to do something like that. So I went after it like a consulting project and I just worked out what it was that you needed to do to be able to raise money and get backing. And the first thing you need to do is to be able to have a credible team of people that are going to run the business. And I think team is a theme throughout things we talk about. So the first thing we did 
was put together a, a brilliant team, including a sales director, an operations director, salespeople, a finance director, and so on. And what that kind of made you realize when you think about it is the importance of the different skills in that top team and what that top team needs to look like. The second thing I learned is that business plan is everything. You've got to be able to explain in great detail what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, and most importantly, what it is that gives evidence that you're that you're going to be able to meet that. And so I went after raising the money, like like I say, like a project. The third thing I learned is that networking with people and relationship is essential. So if you play time forwards, what happened? Well, we did get backing from two private equity businesses to buy the company. And I've still got the letter somewhere or other that says, we'll back you to be the chief exec to buy this business. Jonathan, just so I can understand to your point around the order. So you assembled the management team you described And that was almost the, I guess, the go-to-market for investment is if you invest in us and we secure the business, this will be the team running it. Is that where that team fitted into the approach, just so I'm placing it? Yeah, put prosaically, several people said to us that they would rather invest in a fantastic team of people with a slightly substandard idea than a brilliant idea with a substandard team of people. So yes, that's it essentially. And then the the networking part is to find money and to get backing, you need to be able to find your way into the funding market. And that's a question of relentlessly pursuing contacts, leveraging all the ones you've got, and, and then going from one to the next. So we must have approached 30 probably in the end, and we got backed by two. What was quite interesting about it was that there's a credibility building exercise, and actually I likened it to being a small person looking through a wire fence at big people playing football and unable to find your way into the game. Can you elaborate on that? I love the metaphor. So Yeah, so, you know, you're outside. You want to go and play football, but you can't find a hole in the fence. The people inside are the people with funding. They're playing football. They're all passing the ball to each other. They're exchanging ideas. They're funding each other's companies. They're doing all of this. And you can't get in because they don't know you and they don't know your background and you have no credibility. And so you have to find a hole in the fence. And the hole in the fence is putting the team together and building that credibility and that story and just unrelentingly going to talk to people, get tips from them, understand what makes them react and what makes them not react, finding a hole in the fence, and then they let you be part of the game. The trigger for us was finding an investor that was aligned with the company that we wanted to buy. And their alignment was in two ways. The first was the length of time they wanted to invest for, which was seven years. The second was British brand. And that was their investment strategy. They were all around brand and around building market presence through brand. And what they saw in what we brought to them was a brand that was really strong, but underexploited. And so when we lined those two things up, and then interestingly, once we got one offer, we started to get quite a lot of others as well. And that was the piece. But really, it came through. It was all about relationship and connections. That's what got it done. And just to finish the story, so you got the funding, but you mentioned you you were unsuccessful. I'm intrigued if it's not a sort of interesting juncture, stop me, but were there any learnings from that phase of you'd got the team, you'd got the money, unfortunately fell at the last hurdle. Looking back, is there anything you could have done differently to to overcome that last hurdle or was that something out of your, your hands completely? I don't know. So 
what it comes down to is the very cliched expression that time kills deals. So because I didn't know how to raise money, it took us a long time to do it or me a long time to do it. And so in the time it took me to raise it, the price to buy the business went up. The owner of the business was in financial difficulty at the time that we made the original pitch. By the time we found the money, the financial difficulty had eased and the price had gone up. So actually, it ended up being our decision not to pursue it because we still could have bought it, but not at a price that would have enabled us to make any money. So I would say there's a couple of lessons in it, actually. One I learned and one I probably always knew, and I look back possibly with some regret. The one I knew was that we took too long to do it. So the only question is, could I have been a bit more creative in getting more help to get the money and could I have found the money earlier? Was there a different path to that? I don't know. That might have made a difference. The one I learned from the very skilled private equity people we worked with is don't pay too much money for something. On that latter point, was there ever a tension for you almost in that sort of sunk cost bias? Because when you tell the story back, it makes perfect sense. The price had gone up, therefore it was no longer a lucrative deal for you. I suspect at the time, having invested however much time you had gone on that journey, that there was an element of you just want to do it because you've put all the effort in. How did you avoid that? Was that, to your point, the private equity house almost stepping in? Was that yourself? And I'm just fascinated how you avoided that sunk cost bias that many people can fall into in situations like that. It's such a good question. I think that I and the team were given very good guidance. The private equity team didn't want to proceed at that price. We did try very, very hard to see if we could get the price to the right level and probably carried on. The mistake we probably made was spending too much time after the point at which it became clear we shouldn't pursue it any further. So they gave good guidance and it was helpful actually that they were there and that they made that decision. So they wouldn't proceed. Had it been our money, free and clear, I think we might have made a mistake because I think we might have gone on and done it. And I think that would have been a mistake. And so that's one, if you're thinking about lessons over a career, it's one I definitely learned. There was always this thing, I remember watching all various things on the TV and various advice I've had over the years, which says that, you know, the amount of money that you make in a business is somewhat to do with the price that you sell at, but it's significantly more to do with the price that you buy at whatever business you're in. So yeah, it was really it was really valuable, I think. And how to dispassionately let go of something if it's if it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think often in whatever walk of life, be it business, personal, can often be the hardest thing to do as well. You mentioned around some of the the elements of your consulting career. I'm keen to to sort of take us through some of those steps because I think you touched on some lessons there that you know, you've said will transcend your whole career, and I'd love to dig into those. And and maybe we start with something, and this is in part touches on the conversation we had in preparation for this podcast. But I'll lead in with you mentioned around Andersons, and I think something that stood and stuck with me from our last conversation was was that you said. There's a lot of things in life that are impossible, but there's also a lot of things that people don't think are possible, which actually are possible. And I maybe the the sort of lead into this, and I'll let you decide if this is the right one, is actually the record that you held at Anderson's. Because I think particularly for our listeners, I think that could be quite a nice way to set the scene for for that mantra, but also to 
to sort of tell them about yeah the uh, the journey that you went on and particularly how you got into Andersons and and were an equity partner at the time of the the IPO. I suppose yes, happy to to go through that and and perhaps as a preface to that to say that one of the things I think is encouraging about the world is that I think in many ways it's become a kind of more understanding place and that. I actually might not have felt comfortable to tell this part of the story at some stages in the past, I think. And I think the way that the world was when I started was different. And there was a sort of embarrassment factor, if you like, about the the story that, that I'll tell you. But yeah, no, so in terms of possible and impossible, just to summarize i think where where your question is you know if, if i i think i jokingly said to you that despite some people's views some things are impossible i will never run 100 meters in 10 seconds that is completely impossible so there are impossible things in life but what turned out not to be impossible was becoming an equity partner in one of the blue chip consulting firms with a very 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 poor educational background that turned out to be possible because I was able to do it so I was you know the the history is I was extremely lazy at school and I succeeded in scraping through school well enough I went to a grammar school where 98% of the people went to university and of those 98% the vast majority to what you might term Russell Group universities and I didn't I went to an incredibly lowly ranked university in fact at the time it wasn't even a university it was a polytechnic and so I found myself in quite an interesting position so at the time I left university with a very poor degree as well because I was quite lazy at university or poly as well as at school and so I was in the employment market without a job trying to work out what to do and at that point I decided that I needed to do something so I wrote I think 500 letters to different organizations trying to see if I could become a system programmer in you know in a computing department and I got no answers to any of them and then I got a bit of, I think it demonstrates you do need some luck in life as well as some diligence. So I was fortunate and I got an interview with Arthur Anderson, as it was at the time, and they were setting up a, an outsourcing business. And for a very, very brief period of time, they relaxed their normal education qualification standards. And so to join the consulting business, you would have had to have been to a top five university and got a 2-1 or a first degree. And I had neither of those. But anyway, Long story short, I got employed by the outsourcing business, which at the time was based in Chiswick in West London and had six people in it. It was quite interesting because I think there are now 300,000 people in Accenture's outsourcing business, but I started, I think, when there were six. And it was a really interesting background. So I joined something that was incredibly uncomfortable for a while because it was very clear that the consulting business was a premier brand and the outsourcing business wasn't to the extent that this will be hard to believe perhaps for listeners, but the consulting employees had voicemails and the outsourcing employees didn't because there was cost associated with it and one was deemed to be more valuable than the other. So that's what I mean. I spent some pretty uncomfortable times. I always remember hating social events where because that group was very uniform and they'd all come out of university at the same time the immediate conversation was where did you go to university which was a question i'd really rather not answer you know in that company but you know anyway i did realize that i'd through good fortune managed to end up in an extremely good organization i worked at that point 
laziness finally left me and I worked extremely hard, traveled a lot, built some skills. And I was very fortunate to work with some of the most talented people you'll come across, people like Simon Williams being a great example of somebody who joined the consulting practice. I had a tremendous career there. And, you know, the end result was I grew up through the standard career path. I transferred from the outsourcing business, the consulting business after a couple of years. And I did indeed become an equity partner, which may be a record that I think I was the only equity partner ever that didn't come from a top five university with a 2-1 or first class degree. It may stand as a record, actually, like athletics records, isn't it? I think it may stand as a record for all <laughs> Well, the, the rules time. change and no one can, uh, well, exactly. can beat no, you. You can break it because the partnership doesn't exist anymore. So maybe it will last. <laughs> Just to your point there, Jonathan, around the transition, and this may be or may not be important, but I'm interested to dig into it. Of You mentioned, obviously, luck played a little part, and then laziness left you work bloody hard. That transition, was that something, as in from outsourcing to consulting, is that something that was almost premeditated following your early time there? So, so was it something that you went, I can see where the future is, I need to make that shift? And if so, I'd just love to understand the thought process and journey you went on there, because I think there will be others listening who may be in a similar position or you know, may not be in consulting and want to get in consulting. So I'd love to understand the proactive steps, if they were, to make that transition to enable the record we've just talked about. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think some of it is a function of environment. It's very hard to explain to the listeners, I think, what life was like you know, 33 years ago in that company, but it was very different. It was very clear that at the time, success was more likely to come in the consulting business and the outsourcing business. And that's not a reflection on the skills of the men and women in outsourcing. Absolutely not. It's just the way it was at the time. That's what the company had been and where all the success and money had come from. So partly it was that you could see a faster path to success. But I think more importantly, I think that the skills that I wanted to develop and the things that I was interested in were more present in the consulting career, particularly when it came to being involved in projects, being involved in start to finish development of something and the client facing nature of it were things that appealed to me. And I think also, I think I started to realize that some of the skills that I was able to develop were likely to be useful in that consulting career and 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 cause me to be successful. I would say it wasn't without its challenges, though. I mean, one of the things that people say doesn't necessarily come across about me, but perhaps reassurance for your listeners, I was extraordinarily shy when I was at that stage of life, shy to a disabling extent. So standing up in front of a group of people for me would have been one of the most uncomfortable things. In fact, it was so bad for me that when I first started work, I found it quite difficult even, particularly bearing in mind what I said to you about the slightly rarefied atmosphere of people I was working with. I actually didn't even like introducing myself and giving background in front of big groups of people. So I was painfully shy. But one of the things I realized was that you do have to challenge yourself. And I learned to present in front of people through training and through practice. And that actually turned out to be an incredibly important skill. And I and so although I didn't really want to develop it at the time because it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable, I would say the success in the consulting career came from two things. One was things that I had in me 
that needed bringing out and I was comfortable doing writing skills and 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 you know structuring planning skills and so on the presentation one was extraordinarily important and very painful to learn but if I look back on where I ended up I would not have been able to do very many of the jobs that I've been able to do if I hadn't confronted that demon and been able to do something about it with I have to say a huge amount of help from that organization which taught me to do it including one incredibly painful training course where they videoed everybody which was bad enough but what was even worse they then played back the video in front of the entire group which i didn't realize they were going to do but i do remember that as a groundbreaking moment in learning presentation skills i remember doing a very similar course when i was starting my career and there is Nothing more uncomfortable until you're used to it than, like you say, having a video of yourself played back. It's something when I first did this podcast, it took me a long time to get used to listening to myself. Um, 90 episodes later, I've, I've, I've become immune, but it certainly is hard at the start. To your point, Jonathan, around like, those skills and really putting the effort in, and again, I don't want to oversimplify what, what was probably a much more complex or sort of longer-term journey, but were there any events or was there a period that really helped you make the transition you've described from you know, self-confessed lazy person who'd sort of got to where they'd got to through luck and then making that shift to someone who is working hard and is building those skills because I think there's not a lot of people but I hear some sometimes people say well I just don't have that skill or that's just not me or you know this isn't for me and I'm really interested what was it, if if there was, you know, that was that turning point that took you from, oh, I'm just in the outsourcing business and that's going to be me to, no, I'm going to learn these skills, I'm going to make that shift. Was there a period, was there anything, or was it just more natural osmosis being around and seeing those people working with you? No, I, I think there were specific things. And I think, well, one was a personal thing, which is I did realize, I think there's a growing up thing. I think there's a maturing thing. I matured quite late in life. And I, you know, I, I did mature and realize that actually you have to earn a living and it's better to earn a living, you know, in a way where you've got a thriving career than where you're, where not. I also worked out quite early on that I would rather be in a position where I was making decisions about things than having decisions made about, you know, I mean, obviously we all, we all have decisions made about us. That's, you know, that's part of life, but there is an extent to which. So I realized that. I think the other thing was that and this is the value in teams and in people. I will be forever grateful to, you know, two or three groups of people actually at school, although I don't really think reflecting on school days is necessarily that constructive. But I actually think I could have been in an even worse position if I hadn't been surrounded by a peer group of people who were successful. <laughs> um, but then when I got to Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting, I think that I lacked confidence very much but that confidence came over time through being involved in successful teams but then i think it was also really important that i saw what was possible so in the early days you know we had very young people running very big teams of people you know people in their mid-20s running teams of 60 or 70 people testing things you know and it it was when you saw that, I don't think without the example of having seen that, I would have realized that that was possible and then challenged myself to do it. So I think sometimes that's why role models, and we talk a lot about role models these days, don't we? I think role models are important because they show you 
what is possible to some extent. Now, of course, somebody's got to lead and do it in the first place, but that's why leaders are are important perhaps in life. I think it's a really powerful point. And, a, and actually that point around, like you say, role models, I think the fact they can be anyone in, and anywhere, it doesn't just have to be. And I think social media can sometimes be to blame for this, the Elon Musks or the Richard Bransons. It, just like you say, if you're a, listening to this, you're a 21-year-old analyst and you're seeing a 26-year-old consultant or senior consultant with your capital C leading that team, actually it really does show you what you can do. And I think that's true throughout. And I think implicit in what you're saying is also that old adage that you are the average of the five people around you. And if you change those five people as you did moving into Accenture and then see, or Anderson's as it was, and seeing the consulting side that shifts your mindset. And I think it's a great bit of advice for anyone listening as well. I want to turn us a little bit, um, I guess, fast forward in your journey, Jonathan. If we have time, I might come back to what you said around seeing Accenture go from a partnership to a corporate, but I'm conscious we've got a lot to cover. So I'm going to put that on the shelf that we may come back to. But I want to jump to, I guess, your next chapter with, with Capco, because that's quite a transition after 22 years going from what was Anderson's then Accenture and the size it was to affirm the size of Capco, and particularly, I think, affirming the position that Capco was when you joined. So if you're happy to, would you be able to just share, I guess, where Capco was and, and particularly, I guess, those early those early experiences of the business that you joined, just to paint the picture of, of where it was for our listeners as you joined and then before you took it on the journey that you and the leadership team did? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a, a very small business in the UK in those days. And it was a company of about a thousand odd people, probably left fewer than that actually globally. But London was about just under a hundred people. And it had been through some quite difficult times. So a lot of the leadership had left and there were only two partners left in the in the London office. And for one reason or another, it had got itself into slightly challenged territory. So it was making about 10 million of revenue probably in the UK. And it 80 plus percent of that came from one client and so that obviously creates quite a vulnerability for you and it really it was a contradiction really in many ways because the pe- men and women there were extremely skillful i think i said in the introduction it was a company with great content depth so when you looked at the consulting men and women in there they were truly skilled and and as individuals as some tremendous consultants there and and added a lot of value to the clients but as a business it wasn't really running very well it wasn't selling enough it had some concentration risk and actually this is so long in the past that i don't think it will it, it will matter now it's gone through so many changes of ownership i don't think anybody will mind if i if i tell the story which is a true story which is that at the first meeting that I went to, uh, there were, it was grandly called a partner meeting, but there were only three of us, so it really wasn't much of a partner meeting. But the FD did genuinely ask us in the first meeting before we did anything else whether we wanted to pay the VAT or the staff. So it was right on the limits financially. Wow. And of course, we solved it. It was a bigger company than that, and we found some money from somewhere and did both of those things. But that showed, you know, it was quite close to the edge in terms of profitability and and so on in the UK business at least. And that was the starting point for it, really. So it was quite challenging at the beginning. That is a 
a heck of a place to walk in and, and if that's your sort of first second or I guess any at any point that's a meeting that you probably don't want to be in and particularly when you've only recently joined and to your point then obviously you and the leadership team took the business on a journey you turned it round uh, to your point gosh 80% you know for for a 10 million business that that is a huge vulnerability and I'd, I'd love to understand how did you and the team turn it round from where it was to where you got it to because I think there's obviously going to be some lessons in that and I'd love to yeah you know, with the benefit of hindsight, understand the the approach you took. Yeah, and 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 I think credit is you know it's really important that you reflect the the, the credit in the right place. I I was there for a, a somewhat over well nearly four years I think in the end, and the first eighteen months of the recovery, you know, was myself and you know a fairly small number of other people, and then we some real talent, more talent recruited from other places, including Accenture actually, and that then kick the thing on to you know a whole nother level so that a lot of credit in the second half of my time there is due to other people definitely but you know the end result after three years i bet a while ago so i can't exactly remember the numbers but i think we got to about 350 people and about 55 million of revenue and and you know about eight or nine clients that were meaningful so it, it was really quite a big change as i say you know down to lots and lots of people not not just me but i think project which i sort of Funny how these things stick in your mind. It was called Project Purple for the project to recover the thing in the first place. What did we do? Well, I genuinely think that there are some simple things that work in consulting businesses, but they work other places as well. And that's why I discovered when I took these experiences to other places. I hope this isn't too simplistic a, a thing for you and the listeners, but I start from the principle that actually it doesn't matter what business you're running, whether you're selling washing machines, training shoes, pharmaceuticals, software, or consulting, there are only really two things that matter and everything else flow from them. And those two things are the clients and the people that you work with. Your team and the clients is it. Everything else flows from that. And people sort of argue, well, you need a good product, but ultimately the product flows from your team of men and women putting it together. It might flow over a long period of time, but nevertheless, it flows from that and so i think it's first of all is relentless focus on those two things what happened built a fantastic team that's the first thing and change some people you do have to changing people is difficult because in firms like that there are people who've been in place for a long time who are very dominant who might not necessarily be i wouldn't say good or bad because again i don't believe in people being good or bad i believe in people being in the right job or maybe a job that doesn't fit so well that's another thing that i really maybe we touch on later is a real experience from consulting actually about why people perform in jobs well if it's not going to stop your train of thought jonathan i'd love to know to that point how did you know who was the right person or right people and who wasn't because i suspect that's you know, to your point you've got to get that right to get the right people I don't know. It, was there something you applied there? How did you do it? I think some of it. I think there is an extent to which, and this depends how you measure yourself and what job you want to put yourself in. I think that 90% of the time that people don't, if you think about the negative, don't perform in jobs. I think it's because they're either poorly managed or because they're not in the right job. And the right job for me, I just try and keep things simple, is you know there are three axes. There's the size and scale of the job. There's the level of seniority. And there's the content. 
And, you know, those three things sort of determine uh, if people are fitting in across those three. But if any one of those isn't right, then you can find people struggling. I do think there is a bit of a this might not be the most helpful thing to say, actually, because I think there is a bit of an instinct about it. I think there is you can teach yourself to do it through watching lots of people go through careers. But I think there is it's a bit like having a sense of humor if, you know, you kind of either have or you haven't. (laughs) And I think there is some of that. A lot of it is watching what happens analytically to people over the years. But I always used to say that I reckon that by the time you were a senior manager at one of the consulting firms, if you took 100 new entry graduates and interviewed them all for 10 minutes, if you had the time, you could probably work out you know, with a high degree of accuracy, which five could become partners, not which five definitely would, but which five, you know, probably could. I'm fascinated by that. What would tell you or what are the things you would be looking out for in that? I know it's a hypothetical, but what would be those things that make you go, yeah, that's the one or could be the one? Two things, analytical ability and relationship building. If you can build a relate, it's the way that people interact and the way they build relationships. The ability to build relationships in consulting at the right level is probably the most important skill that you have. Content's important, content's more easily learned. And one of the things I think maybe we, we sort of touch on, you know, perhaps later is, you know, how do you build relationships and when do you start doing it and why is that important, you know, and maybe may come back to that. But, you know, so I think if you look at the people in the company, it's a question of not of getting them in the right roles. So I think what we did was we got people in the right jobs. Secondly, you can't in those jobs spend your time in the office. You've got to spend your time with clients and it doesn't actually matter how big your company is. When I was the MD at FIS with a couple of thousand people are still spent a couple of days a week with customers. You've really got to in all jobs. You know, I was watching so one somebody who I'm a huge fan of, huge fan, Charlie Nunn, who's the new chief exec at Lloyd's, brilliant communicator, brilliant individual, embarrassingly worked for me about 30 years ago on a consulting assignment, which fortunately he knew how to do because I didn't, because it was a strategy consulting assignment. But you can see our relative success and that Charlie is now the chief exec of Lloyd's, brilliant individual. One of the brilliant things about Charlie, if you look at his LinkedIn posts, where does Charlie spend the first three weeks or four weeks of his tenure in branches with customers, with people, building, you know, so I think there's there's that. So the second bit that had atrophied somewhat in at Capco was those consulting relationships outside the core client. And then, you know, three and four probably are manage the small stuff, you know, really manage how long does it take to get people productive when they join the firm? What matching up their skill sets with the jobs they're trying to do, really making sure there's a career path there that matches the things that we're selling to the customers. So really being diligent about that. And then I think the other thing that I think happened probably more in the second half of my tenure, I'm not sure I was the best at this, but I think Capco did do this as part of that recovery. Getting everybody to be a representative and evangelist for the business and to sell the business and to really feel passionate about it. Those were some of the things that that I think we did. The other thing that we did was change the company from being, and I use this term very advisedly and I'll I'll qualify it in a second, but changed it from being a body shop to a service company. So the beginning, it was just body out for a period of time, for a day rate, and then we had this sort of utilization chart about when people came back and when they went out again. And it's 
very difficult to grow a business like that. Now, the reason I say I qualify it is because I actually use the term I think is a bit pejorative and I didn't mean it to be. There are loads and loads of businesses that are highly successful at putting people into jobs for a period of time. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just quite difficult to scale it beyond a certain point. And so what we started to do was to do more work that was based on outcome rather than the number of people involved in it, et cetera, et cetera, and to create a baseload of longer term work rather than people work. One of the interesting challenges we had actually was seeing that business grow very quickly and then being able to accommodate people's preferences. Because as you scale a business, you need a background level of long-term work that might, in quotes, be deemed not to be so interesting. So if you sort of give you two examples, you know, if target operating model work for 12 weeks, are high-profile clients, exciting work, and consultants want to do it and so on. Running testing on a systems integration project at the back end of a back office system might be less so. But without those long-run projects, it's very difficult to keep an, a big workforce busy because of the resale, the selling on costs, selling repeatedly. It's very difficult to do. So you have to get that balance right. And that's why a diverse workforce, and we can maybe talk about diversity later, a workforce with diversity in terms of what it wants to be doing is really important as well because you need people who want to work on long-term systems integration projects that build a back uh, you know, a base load, if you like, of fees so that you can then put those more, you know, those smaller, more rapid pieces of work on top. Those are some of the things that we did. I think a really good, concise list there. And to your point around diversity of work and, and actually generally interested in your view of sort of diversity of team as well. And I think that's something let's come on to a bit later, Jonathan, because I'm keen to to touch on a couple of jumps in your sort of career journey first. Just before we I guess, move on from the Capco story. Those are the four things that worked and obviously helped you and the team turn the business around, make it a success. I almost, just in case anyone else is at this position, that sounds like it was learned over the period. So I'd love to know, was there anything that you tried or was there any principles that you thought would feature in that list that dropped out or any things that actually didn't work that with the benefit of hindsight, you would say, we could have done this faster got bigger, done it more comfortably if we hadn't done? And again, it's just for anyone listening who might be going through that same, I guess, that same journey. Yeah, I I think that when I think back to things that we, well, I kind of did well and did less well, I think that one thing that worked less well that I didn't do very well, I think, was that you have to, there's a real balance in companies of that size about giving people who who work there the freedom to do the work they want to do and have the growth they they want and and pursue the path they want because that's why they're at a smaller firm so for example people that don't want to spend too much time selling work or whatever it might be that may be a very simplistic example but balancing that with the need to create that base load of work and get people to do I'm not sure I accomplished that very well. I think you can, you know, what's the sporting expression? Lose the dressing room if you're not careful. And I think that, you know, we did do that. I did that a few times, I think. I think by trying to drive people to do what I wanted them to do because I thought it was necessary, I don't think I I was as sensitive to that as I, as I should have been, I don't think. So I think that that didn't work. 
as well, I don't think, as, as it could have done. That team building piece didn't work as well as it could have done. It's a really interesting point, and I think the, the the sporting analogy or metaphor is a good one. And regular listeners will know I try and steer clear of anything but sports metaphors because I'm not I'm not good outside of that, Jonathan. The answer to this may have been you didn't, but assuming you did, how did you get that dressing room back? You know, if were there any things you did to get you know get those team members back on side, get people round? And again, it's for anyone listening who might have, to your point because I think we all do, sometimes push a bit hard or go a bit too far in one direction. Maybe I'll add a next element. What, how did you know you'd lost the dressing room and what did you do to get it back? I think this is expressing some weakness and some vulnerability, to be honest with you. I'm not sure I did, but I think that I listened to people that told me that we had. So I think being really... We survey people a lot now. We really do genuinely try and find out what they think. Unfortunately, I listened. And I don't, I think once you've got yourself in that position, I think sometimes you need help to get out of it. And I think that by that time, we were sort of two years in probably. And I think the influx of people from Accenture, the people that came in did a tremendous job. So we knew it needed to be done. And some other people helped a lot with that, I think, in that they, One of the things that happened was a massive resurgence in the social side of the company. And there were a huge number of clubs that that were established and social things that were established. Other people, I'm not so good at that. And other people did that. And that made a difference, definitely. So I think there was a change in the atmosphere of the thing. So what would I say? A couple of things. Listen to the people around you and don't be, you know, so you know, overconfident that you don't listen to the things that need to change and then have people around you that are able to do those things that you may not be so good at. I would say I think that I've used that beyond Capco more effectively than I used it at Capco. You have to get through the, through the you know, through the experience, don't you? And so I think I took it with me rather than solving it at the time, perhaps. Fortunately, other people solved it, but but I think that's true. I think that nicely takes us forward in your journey, Jonathan, because I wanted to, and maybe this is where you you did solve it, I wanted to touch on your time at FIS and, and just to help me and equally my listeners. So Capco was bought by FIS, is that correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. And so, subsequently sold, but it was, it was owned by FIS at the time. So that obviously explains the, I guess, how the opportunity came about. The thing that I'd be intrigued by and again, you can sort of tell me how this story sort of unfolded, is I've spoken to a lot of people on this show who have worked in the big consultancies and have gone to smaller consultancies. And very often, that is because they want want something that the big consultancy can't give them in terms of size, entrepreneurialism, whatever it might be. But usually that is then something that they either stick with or continue to go smaller. So I've had some guests who will say, you know, was it Big Four Accenture, then slightly smaller competitor X, then onto smaller competitor Y, and they really like going down that sort of size trajectory. I've had very few people who have gone to a smaller organization and then gone back up into a bigger one. Now, as I say, this might simply be because of the acquisition, it was a a natural move. But I'd love to understand how you found, I guess, why you said yes to the FIS role, given it was moving from what was a smaller firm to a much larger firm and and role, and how you found that shift back to that world. Did it happen naturally, given you'd been uh, at Accenture for so long, or was there actually more of a culture shock than maybe you'd expected? Yeah, so I did it for two reasons. The the first was that actually it did have a, a consulting 
element to it. But FIS was also a very big product company. And I thought at that stage, it would be really interesting to be involved in product as well as services. And so that was part of it. But the other reason was it was it was an opportunity which was quite it was unusual actually in 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 its nature which was that you know that they were looking for somebody to do that role and just because of the way it it worked the key thing about it was that it was a proper chief exec role so I did it because all the jobs I'd had in the past, even the one at Capco, you're still a partner in a consulting firm and you're responsible if you want to think about it in financial terms down to gross margin level, really, aren't you? And the rest of it down to net margin is the corporation. Even if you're a partner at one of the big consulting firms, you're still only responsible down to gross margin for your client revenue. Can you just, sorry, if and. It'd just be great if you could elaborate on that for those who might not be familiar. What is that distinction? Why is it important? Yeah, so I mean that you're, you know, as a partner, you're measured by do your projects and do your clients generate a certain amount of money? So you get revenue from the client and the costs are the costs of people you put on the projects. And that's the outturn. And that's how you're measured. And do you sell that work and do you deliver that? Come down to net margin, somebody then takes all the cost of the buildings, the cost of insurance, the cost of, you know, the corporate overhead, the cost of whatever. So you get down from whatever it is, you know, 40% at project level down to 15% at company level. So the FIS job was a proper job in from a PL point of view, where I was responsible for everything, right down to the you know the full PL, including the costs of of everything we did, as well as the the project piece. So it was attractive in that sense. And I knew that it would be experience building to do it because I hadn't done that before. So I, I learned a lot of things that you know, the scale of it was interesting to me because it was an opportunity to do something at a scale that I hadn't before. And somewhat dauntingly, it also had some regulatory responsibility because one of the businesses that we ran was regulated because it looked after client money for wealth managers, and that's a regulated function. So we had regulated business in there that I that I was interested in. So I did it really, I suppose, because I wanted to see if I could become a managing director of a business, and that then... I think taught me a lot of skills that added to the consulting ones, rounded things out, and made it easier to go and do other things afterwards. So that yeah, that was that was why. What were those skills? Because to your point, it is a different role, but on the face of it, it can seem like just a different title. What were those, I guess, new skills or different skills that you found yourself really having to get to grips with that you maybe hadn't as a consulting partner? One, you're absolutely right, and it was, wasn't really a function of that different job. It was a function of scale, and it was really that if you're going to run that sort of size and scale of business, you need people working for you that are capable of managing very big things. And so that's not always the case in a consulting thing, but you know, if you've got $400 million of revenue – really what do you need you need an hr director a finance director and four people capable of running a hundred million dollar business basically is what you need and that's quite different so the types of people that you're that you've got working for you but then i think the other two skills i think and two things were again one was more to do with the nature of the business which was the very significant diversity of business 
So everything from call centers, you know, people paid on a very different basis and, you know, doing really quite different jobs from consulting jobs in call centers through to software developers through to big projects. So the diversity of the team was a second thing. But then if you think about the PL piece, you know, and the nature of a the proper MD or chief exec job, you have to be the chairman of a board of a company and be able to run a board meeting for a company, which you don't have to do as a consultant. And the second thing you have to be able to do is to manage the below the line costs, which you don't have to pay any attention to as a consultant. So I would say those two things are probably the the, the big additions. Which did you find harder and why? Uh, that's a brilliant question. So I found, actually, I found one terrifying and one harder. <laughs> so oh, the ter- tell me about both. Oh, regulation is terrifying because, you know, if you make mistakes with regulation, it can be awful. The consequences can be horrific. I remember what one of the companies that we were sort of peripherally involved with got fined. I mean, absolutely, this one will, will remain nameless, but 80 million pounds for a client money error. And we ran a business that ran client money and it probably didn't make, well, I'd say probably it didn't make 80 million pounds a year, never mind be able to pay an 80 million pound fine. So that one was terrifying, plus the personal responsibility for it, which actually wasn't as onerous for me and us as it is these days. The senior management control regime is very daunting, I think, for, for, for the men and women that take those responsibilities. I have huge admiration for them. It's daunting. So that one was terrifying. I always think that team thing, as I said earlier, it's important to recognize what you're good at, hopefully some things, and um, recognize the things where you're less strong. The one I found hardest was the financial side. I'm not by na- nature a CFO or, you know, the, the financial piece of it was more difficult for me. And so you need a very good finance director because I, I found myself feeling comfortable making the decisions once I understood but I really need somebody that thoroughly understands the financials of a company like that so they can help me to see what the decisions are that we need to make. And once I know what the decisions are, I'm fine with that. But I found that a bit quite difficult. So the regulation one, I, and I actually started my career with the FSA as it was then. So I, I feel your pain because it is, it is there for a reason and regulation is needed and sadly many failings have, have shown that but i do feel for senior managers having to navigate that as you have a full-time job on top and and largely those type of failures rarely are your of your making in smaller firms they can be but when you're a firm the size that fis were then you probably didn't speak to the client money managers on a daily weekly or maybe even monthly basis and actually the responsibility you held was significant i I think there is, though, and, and I don't know if this was something you cultivated or if just you came to your point earlier around your journey at Anderson. There, there's something, there's quite a lot of humility, though, in your point around the finances because going in as that CEO, some people would want to, I guess, hide their weaknesses and not want to be seen as someone who isn't as strong in that space. Is that just a skill that you, I guess, you cultivated? How did you develop that humility or was it something you've you've had sort of throughout your time that's a great question i think that it's two things i think one is that i i said earlier on that i hated presenting to people so i i think i always had a sort of certain element of you know a, a confidence whatever it is but i think most importantly somebody 
and I wish I could remember who it was because a brilliant bit of advice told me a very early in a consulting career that one of the only things you can really get wrong that causes real damage in a consulting career is not to raise issues when raise an issue when it should be raised in the right way to the right person and the reason that was a more sage piece of advice than it seems for as when you say it just like that it sounds very simple but actually it's a sage piece of advice because what they were saying was raise the issue even if the immediate effect is deleterious to you. So basically they're saying, if you raise an issue that says, I can't do this, that may result, for example, in at the next open outcry promotion meeting, you're not being promoted. So there could be a, a real consequence of saying, I can't do this. But the point was, that's significantly better than trying to do it failing to do it causing you know all these other things and so i suppose i had that in my mind there's no you you get yourself in trouble if you aren't clear about what you can do and what you can't do and i think you know one of the important things is all the successful men and women out there you know listening to this you're all good at loads of stuff and so be confident about the things that you're really good at of which there will be many and then just make sure that you fill the gaps with, on those. So I think, yeah, it was conscious. It was, this is a really big scale, big thing. And if you get this wrong, it can have really serious consequences. And I think you have to be considerate. I think, you know, it can have really serious consequences for your team and for other people. And your point just now was really insightful because one of the scary things isn't it is when you're affected by something you've got no control over with the best will in the world you can't control what two and a half thousand people do or you can actually not control it but you can influence it and the way you influence it is by building the right team i used to think about this thing where everything's my fault it's always my fault because even if some people in the call center as actually did once have a fight in the car park you know <laughs> You can still, they did actually, um, you know, is that your fault? Well, of course it's not. Well, it is actually. You employed them, your employment policies, your management policies, your management team all the way down. So ultimately, so yeah, sorry, long answer to your question that yes, I did consciously decide that it's important to be open about what you know and what you don't. I think a great answer, Jonathan, and I think your last point as well really powerful and there's a great book actually by a former Navy SEAL so it's a little American and I say that just for listeners who who may find that a bit difficult to to sort of take in but it's um, by a former Marine called Jocko Willink actually called Extreme Ownership and for those of you who aren't inclined to read books the summary is everything's your fault for the reason you've described Jonathan is yes it you didn't do the thing but at some point the structures were created to enable that thing and actually if you take that approach to work, life, whatever it might be, you will naturally improve your organization. And that, again, it's a fantastic book that I'd recommend, but for anyone listening, and I do have listeners who, who like podcasts, not books, so to be considerate, there is the synopsis. I think though, Jonathan, I want to turn in a moment to sort of team and to your point, we've, we've had a thread throughout this interview around sort of forming great teams, leading great teams, and how teams are, are what enable success. But to your example there about the fight in the car park, how did you get comfortable leading two and a half thousand people without finding yourself up every night worrying what they're all doing? And I say that as someone who's never done it, and I'm sure other listeners are wondering, you know, someone might be leading a project team of 10 or 20 and constantly be worrying about them. 
you extrapolate that up. How did you not spend every day worrying what your two and a half thousand people were doing or, or more specifically doing wrong? Yeah, I think it's a great point, Nick. And I, and I think, how do you not worry about it? Well, I think the first thing is, it is it's difficult because it is unquestionably true, well, I think unquestionably true, that stress and anxiety comes from having things in your life that either you care about or that affect you a lot that you can't control. And really, that when you think about most situations, and so having a couple of thousand people that you can't control but can do things that affect you does have its stresses. There's no question about it. Unfortunately, in the incident with the fight in the car park, it was on video, so it's fairly clear who caused it. So actually, the result was easy. <laughs> I digress. How do you do it? It is a constant theme in what we've talked about, which is that I believe in teams that work for you of a certain size and scale and with a certain skill set. And there's a crucial thing about the relationship between the person leading a team and the person in that team as a management team. So the first is the five or six, and it probably is five or six men or women that work for you are absolutely critical. If you get them right in terms of their fit with the job, because of the fact that they're right in terms of what we said before, their content knowledge, the fact that they're comfortable at that size and scale, and they're comfortable at that level of seniority, they will operate in the right way. And that will then cascade down. And I'm not saying that hierarchy is everything, but when you've got that number of people, some sort of hierarchy is. Now, it doesn't mean that we operated hierarchically in every respect, but there is some sort of structure there required. The other thing, so why do I say five or six? I mean, there'd be lots of change consultants out there who might be saying, you know, this is amateur change consulting and you should stick to doing selling financial products or something, which might be right. But I think it's five or six because I think if you've got a management team of 10, no one of those individuals is doing a big enough job and you end up doing the job for all of them. And you can't do that with two and a half thousand people. If you've got two people working for you, you're unnecessary because they're both doing so much of the job that actually, you know, there isn't a job there for somebody to lead. So the right number is important when you've got that scale. The other thing is the gap in skills capability and experience between the management team and the person leading it is crucial. And the reason I say that is because it works in both ways. If the gap in skills and experience is too small, then the people in the management team feel micromanaged and the person leading ends up trying to make all the same decisions that they're making you fall over each other. If the gap is too big, and I'm sure the listeners have experienced both of those, the person leading, that's when the stress really starts because the people in the team can't take on big enough things to be able to enable the the thing to run safely. So that gap, if that gap isn't right between the person leading and the team, management team, then that's when it gets incredibly stressful. In the micromanagement case, it gets stressful for the management team. In the gap case, it gets incredibly stressful for the leader. So really, that's what it's about. And that's why I obsess about that group of people that work directly for you. And that's how you do it. And then you have to, you know, it sounds cliche, but it's true. You just have to worry about the things that you can control and don't worry about the things that you can't. And the things that you can control are to communicate really well to that very large group of people in town hall, in whatever format it is, 
and get your management team right and then make sure that your management team then coach their management teams and all structures to operate in in that way it sounds perhaps overly simplistic i don't know but that's that's kind of how i didn't worry about it too much i think a really good answer and simple is usually better as as we all know as consultants some things can be overcomplicated and i find what we do now as an agency we help firms do exactly that is make the complex simple because usually the simplest is the best and i love what you're saying there around the sort of different sizes and i guess the challenges that come from like you say a a management team that's too large or a management team that's too small and i think jonathan it, it nicely brings us on to probably the last thing for today and the thread that as you highlighted goes through all of your your career journey and that is that leadership and that that team piece and maybe we start with what you were just talking there when it comes to sort of building great teams around that that leadership team of five or six. And you've obviously already touched on on the why you need it. I'd be interested how you selected that team in terms of working together. So you talked about earlier, and you mentioned it there, around the, the things that let you know if someone is the right fit for that role. The other element, I guess, with the management layer is they have to be a right fit with their colleagues or with yourself. And or maybe they don't. I don't want to put those words in your mouth. How does that add a complexity? And and how did you assemble those teams to give you not just people who tick the boxes for their role, but tick the boxes as a team, you know, to the sports analogy, you've got five great players who play together, not five superstars who can't pass a ball between each other. Yeah, I, I, I do think I've come to believe that the personal qualities and the thing is really important. And maybe tell you, something about a friend of mine and a job that he does in in a second. But so I think that the diversity of that team is really important. And that's diversity in all the ways that we understand, because I think that is just constructive. I think it's diversity in terms of skill set. You don't need five finance directors. You need, in fact, that would be really bad. Even though my financial skills aren't that strong, having five finance directors would be unhelpful, I think. <laughs> Just safe to say. I'm sure there's a joke there about them all walking into a bar, but maybe that's for, for another podcast. From, from yeah. another podcast, yeah, exactly. So I think that that diversity is right. I really do think that you have to create a bond between those people as well. So they've got to have the right skills. They've got to have the right diversity. They've got to be in the right job. They really do have to want to work together. And there are a couple of examples of that, I think, that you that you can give. One's things I've experienced, and one is a somebody that, again, you you like your, you know, like me, you like your sporting comparisons. And so there's one there. The one I would say is I've watched really, really interesting situations with management teams that really aren't working very well, even though they might have the right skills. And I suspect that many of our consultants, you know, many of the consultants, again, with a small C at all levels of, of, of their career listening, will have seen this with client engagements. You'll have a team that really doesn't work very well, and then you will go out for a day of team building and do something ridiculous. And, you know, what would be an example? We went and played human table football once with a team of people, which was extraordinary. It was also ridiculous. But what was quite interesting about it was after doing something ridiculous, how different that team was. And, you know, those interactions and that the people seeing each other doing things that are a bit ridiculous definitely helps and they become more human. So it's about being human. It's about having those bonds and it's about having a common goal. I'm not sure that I've ever got it completely right, but as an aspiration, I have to get right a team. So 
the Saracens rugby team is a really interesting example, a, a, a team that's been through, and it doesn't matter what caused it for the listeners who don't know, they were the premiership rugby team that was relegated from the premiership because they breached, at least technically, some rules around financial reward for their players. And I say at least technically because I don't want to get involved in whether they did or didn't. That's not the point. It's not because you're a Saris fan, I take it. (laughs) But they suffered very badly from that. One of the things that was extraordinary was that they had a team full of internationals and very highly rated players, all of whom could have gone to other clubs for much higher pay, probably in many cases, during the period of time that they were in the next division down, and none of them did. And I I know a couple of the guys there and I talked to one of them and, and they have an incredible bond between these people. And one of the things I asked, because I wanted to try and use it in business, was the only other place I've seen that level of loyalty to people was when I worked for a military charity and I saw it in the armed forces as well and Royal Marines that I, I did some stuff with and and others, actually others in the army. And I asked the, the Saracens guy, I said, Do you think it is only possible to build that level of commitment to each other when you take physical risk on each other's behalf? So, because it struck me that the commonality might be, I mean, war is obviously very different from playing rugby, but both of them are very aggressive and involve taking really quite serious risks. In one case, life-threatening risks. In the other, you know, really fairly serious physical risks for somebody else. And interestingly, the answer was, no, I don't think that at all. I think what builds those teams and builds our teams is the fact that they care about each other, they know about each other, they know each other's children's names, they know where, you know, they know where where they live, they know their dog's name, they know what matters, they know what their hobbies are, they really know each other. And if one of them's dad's ill, they'll send a text to say, Hope your dad's all right. He said, actually, you could think that, but it isn't that at all. And that's what I've never, I don't think we've ever really done that with a team at work, but I think it's an aspiration to really think about how you bring a team of people together in a way that makes them want to perform for each other as those men and women did in both of those situations. You know, it's for both the, the Saracens men and women and for the, you know, the men and women in the armed forces. Getting that to work like that, and interestingly, the armed forces you would think is all about hierarchy, but it's not really. It's about there is a hierarchy, a very necessary hierarchy. It's about the same thing. So I think, you know, that that's my observation is you've got to create a, a team that's diverse in all of the ways that allow you to lead a diverse group of people, which is what we do. You've got to have a team of people that are qualified in the right way to do the job across the three axes we talked about size seniority content you've got to have the right gap to the leader in terms of skills and capability and then you've got to find a way to make people really passionate about achieving a common goal and to want to do it for each other and if you can do those things it's hard to do but that's what i think it's all about i don't think i've ever done that in that way properly but it's one of those things where unfortunately i think you you see these things and I look back on all the mistakes that I've made with these over the years and you try and hope that one day you'll put it all together in one place and kind of get it really right. Completely. And so I 
my sport is rugby. So you fortunately hit on the sport that I can actually talk something about. If you suddenly talked about a football team, hockey or whatever other sports people follow, I'd have nothing. And I think your point, so actually, side note, uh, Charlie Hodgson is a former guest of the show. So I, I've talked to him a bit about, you know, that that culture. And I know prior to sort of Alex Sanderson moving on, the, the wolf pack, as they called it, the interesting addition, as I'm sure your contacts there probably told you better than, than I know, is they are quite unusual in the sport of actually the the balance of training versus social activity. So it was quite well known, the, the team building. And I think to your point around the corporate example of the table, the sort of physical or the real in life table football, often it's those shared experiences and bonds and personal, I guess, personality. Because yes, that, that's you're going to be committed to an organization if you know the people and care about them. And I know personally, I've worked in organizations where I couldn't tell you the name of the people one desk over. You know, we've all been in those offices. Gosh, I remember, you know, I remember where you sort of talk and people look over and tut because you should be working. And and those are the places. And I think the, the you know changes to the world that we're seeing at the moment have only made that starker because if you're just at your laptop at home, if you if there isn't more than work, work becomes a commodity. And and that's you know not a way you can build a team. I'd be fascinated, Jonathan. This probably will be my last question on the topic, but brings us nicely up to today, to your point around the benefits of hindsight, what you've learned from Saracens and just your your career. Obviously, you're now with Avalok, and I'd, I'd love to know how you are implementing some of those, I guess, some of those pieces of advice that you just gave to our listeners. How are you doing that for your own team to to build and, and grow the team as, as you want? Yeah, I think it's probably talking about you know bringing it all together i think the, the first two years here was probably the best job that i've done and so there was some fantastic raw material avalok is a very human organization and i think has a you know it's a very respectful culture and a culture that's very people focused and and considerate of people so the raw materials there's also a tremendous amount of skill and capability in the organization and, and knowledge i talked about capco's functional and content knowledge being incredibly strong and, and Avalok was, you know, was, was similar. So, yeah, I think it was all about one of the things that you that you realize is that I'm not sure how to express this really, but success is important. You know, it's one of the things that we did that triggered it was we created sales success, an incredibly talented sales leadership in the in the organization in the UK. And, and in, it is easier, I would say. And I, so it shouldn't be too, you know, you shouldn't get too overconfident about these things because there's no question that it's easier to develop teams in growing organizations than it is in organizations that are static or, or declining. And, you know, the men and women that are dealing with static and declining organizations from a revenue point of view, that's incredibly hard. So, But I think, to be fair, I suppose, we did create that sales success and that sales success then caused us to be able to give growth and to, you know, to make it a, an, an exciting place to work and, and to build those teams. And I think it was about, you know, providing people with interesting work, doing new things and providing that environment. I think that, you know, what has been stark, I mean, I think everybody would say this and don't mean to overplay it, but COVID has been extraordinarily difficult. I do think that, you know, we've been very fortunate and I do count us as an organization and us as human beings as very fortunate in that we, you know, we we didn't have to furlough people 
thank goodness and the many people that have suffered from that i feel incredibly sorry for you know for the the, the impact that's had on them and then people that have lost their jobs and, and and taken pay cuts it's been really awful for many people it has you know it's caused damage to everybody and i think that it is interesting to see that team building thing been been significantly more difficult over the over the last couple of years but yeah i think that's what it's about I think, Jonathan, that is a great place for us to start to draw to a close for today because I think we've we've covered a ton of ground. I'm also very aware it's a Friday afternoon, approaching Friday evening, and I, I don't want to keep you too much longer into your weekend. So I've got two last questions, and these are ones I ask all my guests. So had Simon's answers as well, um, so it'll be interesting to see how you compare. And the first one is is about books. Now, it's worth saying you might not be a reader, and if not, that's fine. You know, This could be podcasts, this could be magazines, YouTubes, but it is is really about where you get insight from or share insight. And, and I'll ask the question as I ask it, and you can take it as you want, which is what is the book or books that, that you've given away or read yourself most, and, and why is that? So I am a reader, and the only thing I'm slightly embarrassed about it probably goes back to my youth. Is they're not terribly intellectual, perhaps, but I'm sure there'd be many more intellectual answers. Harry Potter is a very good answer. It isn't Harry Potter. It's probably a bit more boring than that. But there are three. So the first one is a book called Getting to Yes, which was based, and you probably know, on the Harvard Negotiation Project. I think negotiation is an incredibly important skill, and it underpins almost everything we do in life in a hidden form or a more obvious form. And that book is brilliant. And so I've given that book to lots of people and I and I used it myself and I think it's really good. The second one, just because it's fun, is a book called Freakonomics, which was written by Stephen Levitt, University of Chicago. And that's just a fascinating and slightly controversial take on a number of real world things, but it makes you think. And the last one is, I like sport a lot. Probably more than I should do, actually, because it's. But any, but anyway, it is. Uh, there are many poorly written sporting books, but I do like. I liked Andre Agassi's book Open. I thought his autobiography was really interesting, and his upbringing as a child and what it's like to become a high performance tennis player with a a father who made his success, but in a pretty painful way for for Agassi. It was well written. I also admire Agassi in terms of where he's ended up in life. I think full circle to running a school for people for underprivileged kids in near Las Vegas with Steffi Graf and not involved in the public eye, but basically doing something that gives a lot back. So I think he's quite an interesting character who's followed a path of intensity, followed by rebellion, followed by coming back to, you know, just basically be a good human being. So those are my three. I think some great recommendations. Starting at the end, I haven't read uh, Andre Agassi's autobiography, but I know exactly what you mean. Uh, in the myriad of sports autobiographies, there are very few good ones, but those that are are very good. Um, and I think the way you've described that definitely sounds like a fantastic read. And, and equally, like you, I, I like my sports, never been particularly good at them, which is probably why I picked team sports, because you can hide among the, uh, you are the average of the five, and I could hide among the other four. But actually, that mentality and psychology of a, a you know solo sports person and the effort and I guess challenges that can take, you know, sounds fascinating. And then the other two, I think, great. I think you're probably the first guest to recommend Getting to Yes. Uh, you've probably also read Getting Past No, which I'm sure a lot of being natural cynical consultants, people will probably just jump to straight away now. But to your point, I think that negotiation skill is one that too often people feel is just a sales skill when actually life is a, is a negotiation. And having the understanding of how that works, you know, 
what's talked about and getting to yes is really powerful. So I think some great recommendations. And then Jonathan, very last question. This could be a recap on what we've talked about. It could be some new points, but you have three people in front of you. One is a a graduate just entering the the industry as you would have way back when you were entering the outsource business at Anderson. One is oh, I'm around manager level. I, I I flip between saying grades and years, but they've been in the industry long enough to have an option, but they're not at the senior end. And then so, the last is someone who's approaching partner and everything that comes with that and that decision point. And, and the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those three people? The first to the person just starting out is build strong relationships everywhere you go and nurture them assiduously. The man or woman on the desk opposite you could be the chief exec of a huge organization in 15 years' time. And there's something really interesting about relationships, which is that it's a bit like why do famous people mostly have as their friends people they grew up with? Well, it's because they're the only people they know are really their friends rather than their friends because of the position that they have in life. Chief execs are like that. The ones that I know that I have the best relationships on, we're the ones that I started work with when we were kids. So that one, that one's powerful, I think. Four or five years in, focus. It's very easy four or five years in to start to do loads of different things and doing, you know, my career has been lots of different things, but there's been a technology theme through it. There've been a number of themes through it. So I think I would say, follow those themes and keep consistency. The second is try and really observe a sort of rule that's always worked for me, which is that career at that stage, at all stages, definitely at that stage, is 50% your responsibility and 50% the responsibility of the company you work for in terms of shaping it. Make sure they do their bit in terms of making the opportunities available to you, but do your bit too and decide what you want to do, approach it proactively and constructively and make sure the two mesh. And then, you know, really think about, it doesn't mean closing off parts for yourself at that stage of life, but don't try and do a thousand things. Try and think of what the, you know, things are. The other thing I would say is, when we talked about Caterham, what I said was that actually the core skills that I learned served me well in that situation. So the core consulting skills. So I would say really focus on making sure that you develop those core consulting skills because it doesn't matter what you go on to do later, they will serve you well. The last one, approaching partner, probably two things. A partner, very experienced partner, Anderson, gave me a very good bit of advice, which is he said, you need to be, as a consultant, a successful partner, you need to be either T-shaped or pie-shaped in the mathematical sense, you know, symbol sense, in that you've got to have all the skills at a certain depth across the top. You've got to be able to talk to clients, write documents, present, et cetera, et cetera. But you need to have a leg or two legs, possibly, where you have depth. And he said, you have to have a reason why clients call you and why people want to hear from you. And the T in the T shape or the pie in the pie shape are the two deep ones, the ones that are the reasons. So for me, these days, is actually not so much subject matter expert. It comes back to getting to yes, I'm all right at negotiating deals. And that's what people come to me for most. You need your thing. And the other is, if you're approaching partner, it's a very tough place to be because there are lots of people who 
really desperately want to get there and some may and some won't. But I can say that the firms that select partners are very good at it and they're usually pretty meritocratic. And the thing that determines whether you get through or not usually regardless of all the you know fairness unfairness stuff is whether you create value for the firm and value for the clients and i would say don't kid yourself you know you you know if you are deep down you know if you're creating value for the client or if you're creating value for your firm and your team point was really interesting nick which is you said you know team sports you can hide well you can't hide if you want to become a partner and what you will do probably is make a bad decision because you will end up not being realistic with yourself. You aren't really creating value. You'll stay in that position for three, four, five, six years maybe, and you won't get there. And the question is, is it the right fit job for you or should you go and take your valuable skills and put them elsewhere? Or are you indeed creating that client value and that value for your firm based on the shape of your skills? And then you'll get there. I think a great place, Jonathan, to finish. And actually some really good advice, particularly for those, to your point, who who get close but actually aren't going to get there or or aren't doing, as you say, creating value for the client and for the the firm they're working to get them there, because I think, sadly, and you know, I I know and have seen people in this space, you can get very close to partner and hold on too long to our conversation all the way back at the start about sunk costs because you've got so close, you've gone so far. When actually, to your point, being I guess it comes to the humility point, being humble enough to know when that isn't right or that you're not going to have that fit in the team is exactly what you need to do. And I also love your analogy for our junior listeners because actually it's quite right, isn't it? Is you are blessed if you join a firm today like Accenture or one of their competitors, those people could go on to be that CEO and they will be the ones that remember you. And and as simple as going for a beer with them every few months, it's a, a brilliant way to keep in touch. Or Jonathan, Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Simon was correct when he said you'd be a brilliant guest. So thank you to him. Thank you to you. All that's left to ask is for anyone who's enjoyed today, wants to find out more about yourself, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? LinkedIn is perfect or jonathan.davis at avalock.com. Amazing, Jonathan. Well, I'll put both of those in the show notes so people have them. And all that's left to say is, is thank you very much and enjoy your weekend. Pleasure. Thank you for your time, Nick. It's really enjoyable. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.